Hello, sports fans, and welcome to another edition of Yesterday Sports on the Sports History Network. And make sure to check out sportshistorynetwork.com slash giveaways. I have two signed books I'm giving away. One is titled No Nonsense Old School Weight Training, and the other is Reliving 1970s Old School Football. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. Welcome to this episode of Tim Coffeen Talks IndyCar and Racing History. During each program, Tim will take you behind the scenes and share stories and memories from his long career in the world of IndyCar competition. With seven championship rings to his credit, Tim not only understands auto racing history, He has lived it. And now, for the most famous words in racing history. Drivers, start your engine! Thank you again for that wonderful introduction from the production department at the Sports History Network. And welcome to the newest episode of Tim Coffeen Talks IndyCar and Racing History. I'm Joe Ziumba, and tonight we're going to talk about Retirement, thinking about retirement on that rocking chair on the porch, maybe with a fishing pole or a golf club. How's it going, What does a lead mechanic do (laughs) when he retires from IndyCar racing? Tim, hello. How are you today? I'm doing great. How are you? Great. Well, Tim, I'm not going to tell anybody anything new here, but I think you're retired from competitive IndyCar competition but we understand that you're still working with race cars. How could that be? How did you get involved in this aspect of the vintage racing industry? Well, Joe, uh, 2010, uh, my IndyCar career came to, to an end. Newman Haas shut down at the end of the 2011 season. But during the month of May in 2010 at Indianapolis, they have, um, they have what they call public day, like two days before the race. And they let the public in for free. And they have a lot of older cars on display that have raced at Indy in the past. And uh, in 2010, we got done with pit stop practice two days before the race. They let us go for the the day. And I decided to walk out to the pit lane and walk up and down where they had all these uh, older Indy cars lined up that had competed in, in Indianapolis over the years. And a gentleman stepped forward. He was standing next to his car, and I had met him once before, and we exchanged pleasantries. And uh, one thing next led to another, and two hours later, uh, his name was Phil Riley, and uh, he owns A.J. Foyt's 1960 Bose Seal Fast Special. It was uh, originally built by Frank Curtis in 1959, and Judd Larson drove it in the 500. And... uh, George Bignotti was the chief mechanic. He hired A.J. Foyt for the 1960 season, and uh, he had Quinn Epperly modify that car. I'd always loved that car. He asked me if I wanted to, when the, uh, our conversation ended and the, uh, the viewing in the pits was over and they were kicking everybody out, and he asked me if I wanted to steer the bows back to the museum where they were keeping it underneath a tent. And I jumped in the thing, and I just couldn't believe that I was – and it felt very similar to sitting in a sprint car to me. 
uh, and reminded me when I raced myself. I felt right at home in that thing. And he towed me back to the museum, and I got out of the car when we got back there, and he, he said to me, I don't know what you're doing the second week of July, he says, but if you get the weekend off, he says, you come up to Milwaukee and you can drive this thing. Um, they have a an event in Milwaukee every it's uh, second weekend of July. It's called the Miller Meet. Uh, Harry Miller was a prolific builder of Indianapolis cars um, in the late teens through the 30s, and uh, he was from Wisconsin. So every year at the mile, the Milwaukee Mile in July, they have a gathering called the Miller Meet in his honor, and uh, it's become quite a quite an event. Uh, in my humble opinion, it's the diamond in the rough out there. There's nothing like it anywhere as far as uh, the freedom that you have. Uh, there's two days of run. You can run the cars for two days. They have fast sessions and slow sessions. Um, the people that just come to observe, there's a ton of freedom. The cars are lined up in tents. People can just walk in and look at the cars and ask questions. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of really uh, original cars or some replica cars, but there's a lot of cars. And um, the, the period on the cars goes from like the first 500 in 1911 to the when Jimmy Clark won the 500 in 1965, when the rear engine revolution took over, um, that's the era of the Miller meet uh, from 1911 to 1965. The front engine and the most popular cars up there are those old Offenhauser Roadsters that dominated for so many years. And uh, it's just, it's a real, it's something I've always, it's what I grew up watching as a kid. And that's what really, uh, got me interested in racing was watching those guys wrestle those offy roadsters around the speedway. So it's a real thrill for me to uh, work on those things. And I've, I've got to drive them too. And it's just a real kick in the pants. Uh, it's something that uh, I, I just really enjoy it. I want to ask you more about those offy engines, but first uh, I'd like to learn a little bit more about the Milwaukee Miller meat. Do the cars race at all, Tim, or are they mostly display, or are they actually driven like you said you drove it? Was that at this this meet itself? Uh, like I said, they have fat, they have slow sh- sessions. A lot of two seat cars go out, and uh, guys will even like really old race cars or two seaters, and guys will take a passenger with them. Uh, and then the the roadsters and everything, you can go out. You just you know the the guys that do that they do a great job you gotta you gotta use your head it's not a race no but i mean you can you can throttle them up going down the straightaway and it's a tremendous thrill and you just get out of the gas and the first time i ever drove phil's car he told me he says he told me he says i know you know what you're doing he says but just he says you know pick the throttle up down the straightaway and have fun let off and get down in the corner feeder the throttle don't get wild and he said don't be blown by guys on the outside coming off the corners or going into the corners. It's it's just using your head and common sense. It's not a race, but uh, it's a lot of fun to drive the cars because if you sink your leg in an offy, um, they'll throw you back in the seat. Those those old uh, things got. I mean, they made four hundred and fifty horsepower. I mean, and a car weighs like sixteen, seventeen hundred pounds horsepower to weight. That's pretty darn good, and they. They're a four-cylinder car. The pistons are four and a half inches, uh, you know, diameter. So uh, they got a lot of torque. 
it's uh, it's a lot of fun. Let's talk about the weekend itself. You're the crew now, even though it's for a much different reason. When do you get to Milwaukee and what do you do each day with the cars? Are you part of the exhibit of the cars or actually running of the cars? Well, it's a it's a two-day deal. Uh, you run Friday and Saturday. So we drive up. I drove up from Indy. Uh, high school chum of mine, Damien Neal, one of my best friends, went with me this year. Uh, we were both Parnelli Jones fans in high school, so he went with me. And we went up Thursday, and Friday morning you get there. They have a driver's meeting. Uh, you prep the cars. Uh, Starting an Offenhauser up, you got to pull the plugs out and spin it over and get the fuel up in the thing and then put the plugs back in it, start it up, warm it up. It just normal race car maintenance. you got to check the tire pressures. You make sure the wheels are tight and the thing's warmed up, and then you go run the thing. Uh, and you do that two days. That's uh, Friday and Saturday. And Friday night, they have a really, really nice uh, banquet. And they always have a guest speaker. Johnny Rutherford spoke a couple years ago. This year, they had an older gentleman that was a, a really, really interesting uh, hit. He was a great historian. But it's a nice dinner, and it's a very, very casual atmosphere. Like I said, there's a ton of freedom. Uh, the fans can just come, and and they can walk through the tents. And, of course, when you're working on the cars, you'll – once in a while, have someone standing over your shoulder telling you what to do. It's, uh, <laughs> you know, he, his Briggs and Stratton, he, he got away from the wife and the lawnmower for a day, so he wants to tell you how to work on an Offenhauser. But uh, uh, it's a lot of fun. It's, it's, it really is. There's, it's a really special event. So you said you were able to drive the car this year, or was that in the past, Tim? Uh, no, I've driven there. Every year I went there, I've been able to drive. I've been going since 2010. Uh, they didn't have it because of COVID, of course. Uh, but other than that, I've tried to make it every year. And uh, uh, like I said, Phil Riley has been very, very uh, – he's been very generous with me. He's let me drive that uh, A.J. Foyt, the Seal fast car from 1960. Uh, it's a laydown offy. Uh, Frank Curtis built it in 59, and Judd Larson drove it in the 500, and Big Naughty took it to Quinn Epperly. Uh, it was a magnificent fabricator, car builder out in California and had him modify the car for the 60 race when uh, A.J. drove it, Foyt drove it for Big Naughty. And I've got to drive that car. And Joe Freeman out of Boston, uh, Massachusetts, he owns a, a, a car, uh, the Joe Hunt Magneto Special. Uh, it was built by Wayne Ewing. And uh, it was in one Indy 500 in 1960 driven by Al Harmon. So I've got to drive those two cars, and I get to work on both of them. And I enjoy, I'll, I'll be honest with you, it's about equal enjoyment. I really i really enjoy working on those old offies. It's got to be a thrill for you, as you mentioned, growing up and going to the Speedway as a kid to actually be working on one of those cars from way back when. Is it, is it a thrill that I can imagine when you're working on AJ's car from 1960? Well, it really is. And, and the thing to me that, I mean, racing evolves and, and I mean, the, it'll never change. I mean, there's a lot of, when you're working on a car, uh, but it's the technology has changed is what I'm trying to get at. And those cars were very, very simple. I mean, these cars today, uh, computers, uh, ECUs, um, you got, you got an uh, engine engineer plugs in, you got a, uh, 
a uh, scoring stand with tons of computers and engineers that are monitoring everything that's going on with that car as it goes around the track. You got a helicopter above the uh, track with the telemetry on board that you know, where they get all their information from. Those older cars were very very simple, and you had to do you had to, if you had. Like for instance, we had trouble with the uh, offy engine in the Joe Hunt car, and uh, I worked with Phil Riley on that, and I learned quite a bit from him. Uh, I mean, you got to figure it out on your own, basically. I mean, it's it's there's no telemetry or data or anything on them. I mean, it's it's all seat of the pants, and uh, those guys that worked on those cars uh, figured out the the engines and everything on those cars. They were pretty darn smart. You know, you've mentioned in the past about. The engine manufacturers being such an influence during your career in IndyCar racing. Uh, I think you mentioned the Foy car did have an offy engine. Yeah, and that's a unique car, Joe, because uh, in in uh, 1957, a gentleman, uh, he was a great chief mechanic. Uh, his name was George Sally. He was a chief mechanic that won uh, the – he was the national champion chief mechanic for Tony Bettenhausen in 1951. And uh, he he was very successful, but he didn't want to travel uh, the circuit. So he took a job uh, at the Offenhauser plant, the engine plant in Los Angeles. And he came up with a concept uh, for a car. And he, he wanted to build a, an Offy is a very tall, uh, it's a skinny motor if you look at it. It's tall and narrow. Well, he... He, decide, he decided he wanted to build a car where if you laid the engine on its side, that, uh, you know, it'd be more aerodynamic, lower. And, uh, and he built it in his own garage at nighttime in the winter of 57, uh, 56 and 57. He built this car in his garage in L.A. Him and it was a guy, uh, Howard Gilbert was his partner. And it was George Sally, Howard Gilbert. And Quinn Epperly built all the body for the car. And he had, I mean, he worked as a foreman at an offy plant, building engines in the daytime. That was his full-time job. He didn't travel on the circuit. He used to come back for the month of May and chief mechanic on a car, but he didn't travel the circuit anymore. Well, anyway, he went back to Indy with this lay-down offy that he built. And uh, he, he was with every intention of trying to sell the car. And, uh, you know, he wanted to run it, and he hired Sam Hanks who had run second three times in the 500, but had not won it yet. He was 42 years old, I believe. Hanks was a heck of a chauffeur, obviously. Sandy Balland uh, sponsored him for the month. They, nobody bought his car. He got a little bit of money from a sponsor, and they ended up winning the race with this lay-down offy that he had designed and built. And Sam Hanks retired in victory lane. He said it. Three times I ran second, and I finally won this thing. I'm done. I'm going home. Jimmy Bryan, the great Jimmy Bryan, three-time national champion in the 50s, uh, but he hadn't won the 500. And when Hanks quit, he went straight to to Howard, uh, to uh, Sally, and said, I want to drive that car next year. And Sally hired him, and Bryan ended up winning the race the next year. Mm. Coffee. So that became the craze. Uh, Frank Curtis was a prolific car builder at the time. He built uh, he built some uh, laydown cars, and that's what Phil Riley's car is. It's a laydown off of the engines laid over on its side, and the traditional, like I would call them, the AJ Watson the Curtis Roadsters, uh, preceded AJ Watson's cars. 
the, the engine stood up in those cars. Those, those lay-down offies, they won in 57 and 58, but they never had the success again. And A.J. Watson uh, with the, the Roadster that was the – the Curtis was the predecessor to the Watson Roadster, but it was the traditional stand-up engine offie. The, they ended up winning from 1959 uh, till 1964 was the last time a front-engine offie Roadster won with Floyd and Bagnotti. But, uh, yeah, it is uh, – and those guys, it's just amazing what they did, how they figured out how to do things. Um, like I said, there wasn't a lot of engineering involved, and uh, they had to figure it all out on their own. And I, I really admired those guys. Sounds like that engine had quite the success over the years at Indy. Well, it was an offspring of uh, the Miller meet uh, I've mentioned before, Harry Miller. He was a prolific builder, and he was an innovator, and he had a lot of smart people working for him. Uh, he had a gentleman named uh, Leo Goosen that was his designer, and a guy that ran his plant uh, in L.A. was a guy named Fred Offenhauser. Well, in 1933, I believe, uh, during the Depression, Harry Miller went broke. And Fred Offenhauser and Leo Goosen, they they got the engine equipment, uh, and they started building engines. And uh, off he won, an Offenhauser engine designed by Leo Goosen, uh, won the first five, won the, off he won its first 500 in 1935. And it won again in 1937, and then the last race before World War II in 1941. And then uh, they started racing again in 1946, and the Offie then won in 47, and it won it won every race from 1947 to 1964. Whoa! And there were many many years where the entire field of 33 cars at Indianapolis ran Offenhauser engines. So it was, and not only that. I mean, when the when Ford. Uh, back the Lotus project in 1963, and then in 64 they came out with a four cam Ford, um, and Ford won uh, in 65 with Jimmy Clark in 66 and 67. Uh, Ford won the race. Well, in 1968, Bobby Unzer won because off he fi- they figured out how to turbocharge the Offenhauser. It was a smaller cubic inch displacement. They went from 255 down to 159 inches, but they turbocharged the thing. And Bobby Unzer won uh, with a turbo offie in 1968. And then uh, Ford won, Turbo Fords won the next uh, three 500s. And, but then Mark Donahue uh, in 72 won with a turbo offie. John Cock won in uh, 73 with a turbo offie. Uh, Johnny Rutherford won in 74. Bobby Unzer in 75. And the last offie win was in 1976. Rutherford won with a turbocharged Offenhauser. And I really believe that the, the only reason the Offenhauser became obsolete is because USAC instituted uh, the fuel mileage. You had to make 1.8. They gave you enough fuel, but you had to make 1.8 miles to the gallon to make it to the to the end of the race. And those uh, Cosworth engines that had come out, the English company, and it was a V8, and it made better fuel mileage. And that's what obsoleted the Offenhauser, not the power it made. So, Tim, we're going to reimagine your career. You work with the latest technology and engineering with the IndyCars during your career. 
But can you place yourself back in 1960 working on A.J. Foyt's car, the same one that you were working on for the Milwaukee Miller meet? What would the responsibilities of the crew be like in 1960 compared to, say, 2010? Well, in 1960, the chief mechanic was in charge of everything that went on with the car. A lot of the chief mechanics built built the engine for the car. Uh, A.J. Watson, he built not only his own cars, but he built cars for customers. These guys did everything there was to do in the cars. I mean, there was gifted people that were chief mechanics that did virtually everything to the race car except upholster and paint it. Uh, nowadays, uh, engineering plays in just a huge part of what goes on. Uh, the engineers in control of setting up the car. Um, Chief Mechanic Modern Day Racing uh, is responsible for the parts on the car and and making sure the work is done properly and keeping the crew in line. Uh, but it's a very it was a very very different era because those guys actually built the car. I remember as a kid looking through the fence at the speedway and seeing a, a mechanic putting an Offenhauser engine together on an engine stand inside a garage in Indianapolis. They actually built the engine inside the garages. And, uh, I mean, it was, and you had no dyno, had no dyno to run it on. You had to, you'd put it together and you'd put it in the car and either she will or she won't. You take her out on the track and those guys at that era, I mean, they were just, they were craftsmen, uh, fabricators, welders, engine builders, those guys that, that racing today has become very, very specialized. And I'm not saying these guys are any less talented. They're not. But it was a different era, and there was a – I'd just say there was a lot of intestinal fortitude to what they did. And a lot of guys built their own cars, figured out how to – I mean, the Offy, they, the Offy was a – they changed – some guys would change the bore and the stroke on the thing to see how it would run compared to the way that they built them at the factories. I mean, it was, uh, um, it was an era where there was a lot of uh, imagination. I would use that word. And in, individuality. It was uh, – Guys were, they were something else that did the work on those cars. Well, racing was a a lot more dangerous back in the 50s and 60s. And I know that you had mentioned there was a bit of a tragic story affiliated with the second car you worked on for Milwaukee. Would you care to tell us about that, Tim? Uh, Well, Al Herman drove the Joe Hunt car in 1960. Um, Al Herman was rookie of the year uh, in 1955 in the Indianapolis 500. He was was in five 500s. Um, He qualified the Joe Hunt special and uh, the Joe Hunt Magneto special in 1960. But unfortunately, uh, two weeks later, he was killed in a midget in Connecticut. And the next day, that was, uh, I believe it was uh, June 18th, 1960, a Saturday night, he was killed on a first lap crash in a midget in Connecticut. Well, the next day at Langhorne, Pennsylvania, the great, the legendary Jimmy Bryan racing at Langhorne, Pennsylvania in a champ car, an Indy car. Um, he was killed in a first lap, first turn crash. And across the, it was a very tragic weekend because across the Atlantic in Formula One at uh, the Belgian Grand Prix and Spa, uh, Alan Stacy and Chris Bristow uh, were killed in the Belgian Grand Prix in separate crashes. But I mean, racing was very, 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 I mean, racing's always going to be dangerous, but that era, especially, I mean, it was, uh, it was a tragic weekend. Yeah. Yeah. 
Well, on a happier note, it's really wonderful that a lot of these old cars are being saved and restored by individuals like yourself. By the way, any of the cars, and I've always wanted to ask you this, I've seen some of the cars at the Indy Museum. Are they operational? Have you worked on any of those by any chance? Um, I, the Speedway asked me a couple times to help them run cars on race day at Indy. I mean, after my uh, after I was no longer on a racing team. And they have a fantastic uh, crew at the Speedway uh, Museum that actually uh, – those cars aren't, they just don't sit there and, I mean, they'll take them out and run them. I mean, this May, they ran Parnelli Jones' 1963 car that won the 500. They run Troy Rutman's car. Uh, Poppy, uh, David Poppy Lars runs the Speedway Museum. He uh, he's maintains all the cars for the Speedway Museum. They, they have a great crew at the Speedway Museum. Uh, that takes care of those cars, and they run. They just don't. I mean, Parnelli Jones took Ray Haroon's car out, I believe it was in 2000, 2011, and uh, the car that uh, 100-year anniversary of Ray Haroon's win, Parnelli took the car out and uh, blew the engine up in the thing. <laughs> but uh, he took her out there and, and uh, drove it around the track. So those cars at the Speedway Museum, they run. Huh. And Tim, what's it like physically to work on one of the older cars compared to the more modern Indy cars, uh, especially as all of us get a little bit older? Are there any aches and pains that you experienced after Milwaukee? Well, the one thing I noticed about it, because I worked on uh, Joe Freeman's cars to go up to the Miller meet for a couple of weeks before we went up there. And uh, I was doing a lot of the work by myself, but that's, you know, I, I enjoyed it, but uh, we used to put the when Indy car when I when I was on a team we put the car up in the air a lot and you'd be standing next to the car working on it basically well on those cars um, they're on the ground so you're lay, you're laying on your side or you're bending over bending your knees uh, it, it's tough it's physically um, it, it, any kind of work on a race car is not easy but that was a different kind of hard for sure. Hmm. We're glad you survived. Hey, before you go, I wanted to ask you about the Ford Cosworth engine that was more prominent after the Offy domination that you talked about. Do you have any good stories regarding that product? Um, the Cosworth showed up, I believe, in 1976 with uh, Bell's Parnelli Jones. Keith Duckworth from England, I believe. It was a uh, I mean, it was a Formula One engine. Uh, Lotus, Lotus ran it in 1967. Jimmy Clark, I think, won the first race for Cosworth. But the Cosworth, they do a great job. They always made a lot of horsepower. I mean, that engine, we ran it uh, in 1992. Uh, for the, we, we had been running Ilmore Chevys at Newman Haas my first few years there and we went to the Cosworth in 1992 and they make it, they, they know how to make horsepower. There's no doubt about that. And, uh, I mean, they came, they're cutting edge technology. They're really smart people. Cosworth has a heck of a history also. I mean, they're right up there. I mean, Offenhauser, like I said, they went from, they won their first race in 35 and the last one in 76. So that was a, that was a long period of time. But Cosworth is also, uh, but nowadays, you know, Honda and 
and Chevy. They're the two manufacturers in IndyCar. And uh, so Cosworth and Offie are they're part of history. Well, we appreciate that insight. Hey, one final question for you, and thanks for taking us behind the scenes of this great effort to restore and maintain IndyCars. But when you're working on cars that are that old, what's the most difficult challenge you've seen in making sure that these cars are up and running as scheduled? Well, you know, a lot of it is is what – just to be honest, I mean, they don't run that often. So if they sit there for periods of time, you can have problems like with a menthol alcohol is what those cars, they don't run that anymore. They run, I believe the Indy cars run ethanol now, but uh, menthol can really, uh, it can tear up the innards of the metal and uh, inside, inside the fuel cells and things like that. And you got to maintain those things and stay on top of them. I mean, any kind of race car you work on, um, well, some of these cars they sit around for a year or so, and then they want to take it and run it, and and uh, you have all kinds of problems, and it's not a lot of fun. So it's just like anything else you do; you got to maintain it, you got to stay on top of it. And any kind of working on race cars is not easy; it's work. But and there's something about being with a race car when that old offy fires up and you're breathing that menthol, mm-hmm. it's uh, it's it's makes you walk on the balls of your feet. Oh, man, that sounds wonderful. Well, Tim, hey, thank you again for your time. And for our listeners, don't forget to uh, drop Tim a line on the site of the Sports History Network. Look for Tim Coffee Talks IndyCar and Racing History. If you have any questions, comments, and if you missed any episodes, they are stored there for eternity. Well, thank you, Tim. And until next time, thank you so much. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. Hey there, Sports History fan. This is Arnie Chapman, a.k.a. the Football History Dude, and I wanted to thank you for stopping by to listen to another episode here on the Sports History Network. Our podcasters are passionate about uncovering and sharing sports stories from yesteryear. And if you didn't know it already... We have over 30 shows across the network covering all sorts of sports history topics. In fact, here's a glimpse into one of our awesome podcasts here on the network. Join George Bozica, the president of the PFRA, and myself, John Bozica, each month for the Professional Football Researchers Association official podcast. We'll discuss the history of the game, the many names of the game, and so many different things for you, making the history of football not only entertaining, but fun at the same time, as we join you on the Sports History Network on the official PFRA podcast. How about that? I bet you're super hyped to go listen to that new podcast, right? Well, to learn about this show and all the other podcasts on the network, head over to sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Again, That's sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Head over there today to find your next favorite sports history podcast.